So our Old Testament uh, text, which is our sermon text, is from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, and this can be found on page 342 in the paperback Bibles. And if you guys don't have a Bible at home, we do encourage you to take uh, one of the ones that we have here in the pews. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All right, good morning. I don't think I need this here. So there's often a correlation between the things that we love and the things that we hate. Because if we love certain things, we tend to hate other things. So on a somewhat trivial level, and you guys could shout it out if you know the answer, a person who loves the Boston Red Sox probably hates the New York Yankees, right? That's good. Manny Pacquiao? (laughs) Floyd Mayweather, right? This one's a little harder. Someone probably loves Walter White. Oh, come on, breaking. Gustavo Fring. Yeah, that's right. Last, Kim Kardashian. Probably Taylor Swift. There we go. I'll leave it to you to decide whether or not the hatred is appropriate, but this is the way it works. When we hate the things that threaten the well-being of the things that we love, we start to hate it. And on a more substantive level, if you're a parent, you love your children, and because you love your children, you hate the things that might hurt or threaten them. The more intently you love certain things, the more you hate other things. And similar things can be said about God. Because he hates certain things, he loves certain things. And today we're going to look and examine seven things the Lord hates, found in Proverbs chapter 6, 16-19. through 19. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, we've been studying the book of Proverbs in our series, The Wisdom of God. And one of the themes in this ancient wisdom text is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, this isn't the type of fear where you're, you feel like you're always walking on eggshells because you're afraid that God's going to smite you with lightning, right? Rather, it's a reverential fear. It's a holy concern to give God the honor that he deserves. John Piper, a biblical scholar and pastor, describes the fear of God this way. He says, imagine you're caught in a terrible storm while you're climbing Mount Everest. There's a huge gust of wind and you're almost knocked off the mountain, but then you discover a cleft in the ice where you could hide and find shelter. Even though you're safe, you watch the storm go past with a kind of trembling pleasure. That's how he describes the fear of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 14 says, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it rests satisfied. Well, one aspect of the fear of the Lord is to love what the Lord loves and to hate what the Lord hates. You know, earlier we established that the more intently you love something, the more you're going to hate something, right? In the same way, If we align our lives with God and His truth, we will also hate what He hates, and we will love what He loves. So today in chapter 6, our list here of seven items will inform inform us of the things that we too ought ought to hate. 
So let's look at chapter 6, verse 16. It says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Let me read that again. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Right off the bat, it's really hard to imagine a more definitive way to express God's displeasure than with these two lines. Right? As strong as it is for God to say that he hates something, the second line right here, it just heightens it. Verse 16 begins with a literary device uh, common in Hebrew poetry known um, as uh, when the author lists a number of items and then he mentions it again expanded by one. So that's why you saw the number go from six to seven. And this increase from six to seven isn't a sudden change in the writer's mind, but rather the author's doing this with the intention to place emphasis on the seventh item on this list. It's as if he were saying, there are six things that the Lord hates, but there's a seventh. And so automatically mind goes, oh, there's a seventh one. And because of this literary device, one commentator notes that the seventh thing that the Lord hates, which is the one who sows discord among brothers, is key. It's crucial to understanding the six previous things listed. So as we work our way through the list, I want you to see um, as we go through each item in light of how it might sow discord or bring conflict in the community. So let's read verses 17 through 19. And here's the list. Number one, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that makes haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. As we read here, we'll notice that the first five items that the Lord hates are all related by tying them to a body part, and they are set in a sequence that generally moves from the head to the feet. And the last two items describe specific types of persons, a false witness and someone who sows discord. So let's begin with the first one, haughty eyes. The literal translation of the word haughty is high, and it describes someone uh, that has exalted himself or herself above everyone else and is looking down on them. We call this pride or arrogance. Proverbs 16 tells us pride goes before, dis- uh, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. If you remember last week when Chad preached, he mentioned uh, a prideful king named King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's quoted in the book of Daniel saying, Is not this the great Babylon empire I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The book of Daniel also records that while these words were still on his lips, a voice came down from heaven and said, This is what is decreed to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. Nebuchadnezzar literally says, I did it, right? And God goes, the throne is removed from you. You know, the dangerous thing about pride is that although it's easy to see it in other people, it's quite challenging when it comes to diagnosing our own hearts. Pride infects our eyesight, causing us to view ourselves through a lens that distorts reality. It's pride operating when I'm sitting under sermon and I skip over the spirit's surgery on my own heart and I jump to thinking about people in my life who really need to listen to the sermon. It's pride operating when I'm far more concerned with other people's perception of me rather than the reality that's in my heart. 
It's when I have success in the areas of holiness that have high visibility, but little concern for the disciplines that happen in secret. It's pride operating when I honor those that the world deems as honorable and giving weight more to their words and their needs. It's as if I have a feeling that goes through me when people with power acknowledge me and for some reason, consciously or unconsciously, I pass over the weak, the inconvenient, or the unattractive because they don't seem to offer me much. Right? We need to accomplish the gospel work with a humble attitude, no matter what position or situation that we are in, no matter who we are speaking with or no matter who we are serving. We are always to humble ourselves before God and before our brothers and sisters as well and consider each brother and sister as precious and an image bearer of God. Number two, a lying tongue. Lying involves willfully making statements that are false. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we might lie. Craving attention, approval. These are just some of the reasons why we might kind of exaggerate or just flat out affirm things that aren't true because we don't want to look bad in front of people. Or sometimes we lie to benefit ourselves. The Atlantic has an article about how technology makes it easier more than ever to play fast and loose with the truth, but also easier to get caught. Kathy Cashwell, a, post ca- a postal carrier, appeared on The Price is Right and advanced to win a coveted turn at the big wheel. Now, if you guys are familiar with the show, this is a big deal, right? You have to kind of guess the price. She won it. Host Drew Carey says, come on up. She runs on up, and she's at this big wheel, and you know that this is a big vertical wheel. She raises her arms, and she pulls down, spins for a while. She wins a lot of money. This is great. The problem is, a few years earlier, Cashwell had applied for workers' comp claiming an on-the-job injury and filed uh, paperwork that indicated that she could no longer stand, sit, walk, kneel, climb, bend, reach, grasp, or drive. (laughs) Well, the giant wheel spinning next to her suggested otherwise, and... As with the photos of Cashwell and her husband ziplining during a carnival cruise a year after, which were posted on her Facebook wall, she was indicted quickly by the federal courts and she pled guilty for fraud. Um, so the question is, why, why do we lie? Right? When we look to scripture, there seems to be some sort of connection with lying and the condition of the heart. All of our hearts desire after something, and there's really nothing wrong with desire in and of itself. The problem is when desire goes after the wrong things. And, and our heart goes after the wrong things because our hearts are deceived by Satan, the father of lies, about what is truly desirable. Je- Jesus teaches us from the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples should be so truthful in their speech that they shouldn't take oaths to ensure that they're telling the truth. He simply tells them, let your yes be yes and your no's be no. As Christians, we don't need to go around saying, I swear I'm telling the truth. We simply have to keep our word. Let our yes be yes and our no, no. God loves truth and we need to be transformed by the truth and not fall into deceitful cravings that cause us to distort truth in order to gain a worldly advantage. Number three, hands that spill innocent blood. Proverbs 1, if you guys remember, warns us against being influenced by those who lie and wait for blood. The phrase, hands that shed innocent blood, describes a violent personality. 
a lack of control over anger is implied, and, as, and also a profound lack of regard for the value of human life. This is a personality that will beat or even kill someone over a perceived or presumed insult. Scripture tells us that God created and sustains life. And all throughout Scripture, God is on the side of the helpless, on the powerless, and on those that are marginalized. Therefore, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And since every person is created in the image of God, those who shed innocent blood have a blatant disregard for human life, but also for God himself. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Another way to say this is, this is someone who is intentionally plotting or scheming evil plans. This is someone with uh, no regard for anything but that which might work to his or her advantage. Rules and values are used when it's beneficial to do so and disregarded when they're inconvenient. Several commentators made the connection that this type of person may have similar qualities with someone with a sociopathic personality. Uh, if you guys are familiar, this is a bit of an old movie. Um, it's called Silence of the Lamb. Anthony Hopkins, he who won an Academy Award for his portrayal of Dr. Hannibal Lecter, plays the role of the primary antagonist who psychologically controls everyone around him, and he's also a cannibalistic serial killer. It's kind of complicated. But in this film, he manipulates everyone, and it isn't until the very end that the characters around him and the audience watching the film realize that they're being tricked. Right? This is exactly someone with a heart that devises evil plans. A heart that devises evil plans is an abomination to God. It signifies that the person is pursuing things that will be destructive to them and to those around them. Five, feet that run rapidly to evil. The feet set into motion the whole person toward evil that he wants to achieve. It speaks of an enthusiasm for opportunities to do wrong. Uh, such an individual regards the occasion to sin when it appears as a stroke of good luck, or a terrific chance to get away with breaking a rule uh, and perhaps get away uh, for something, for nothing. And so we saw the first five things, and they were related to body parts. The next two items that God hates, the author departs from naming the body parts and describes specific types of persons. So number six is a false witness who utters lies. Now, this might sound familiar. Earlier, we saw that God hates a lying tongue. But here we have a more specific type of lying. This is someone who's a false witness. Someone who commits perjury, who accuses the innocent of something that they did not do. In scripture, we see that this was one of the common tactics of those who opposed God's people. That one of the tactics was to trump up false charges on innocent people. David in Psalms 27 cries out, false witnesses have risen up against me. Paul in Acts 25 goes to court to defend himself against false charges. We're told that at Jesus' own trial, many false witnesses came forward to accuse him of things he did not do. Lastly, number seven. This is the last one. The one who sows discord among brothers. Now, at the very beginning of our talk, we mentioned, I mentioned that there was a literary device being used on our passage, right? Where the author, his goal was to fix our attention on the seventh item on the list, that's why he said there are six, but there's also a seventh. And now the seventh item, which is the one who sourced discord among brothers, is the key to understanding the previous six. 
So what we can do is, when we read through the list in light of the seventh item, what we see is that what God hates about haughty eyes, the first one, is that their arrogance sows discord among the brothers. What God hates about a lying tongue is how gossip and slander sows discord among the brothers. What God hates about hands that shed innocent blood is that it sows discord among the brothers. What God hates about a heart that devises evil plans is that it sows discord among the brothers. We get the point, right? It goes through. So what can we learn about the heart of God from this passage? We could learn that God deeply cares about unity within the church. As we desire to align our lives with God and His truth, we will also begin to love what He loves. And we know that God delights in seeing unity within the church. So what does it mean for our church as CTK here to have unity? I believe that we Christians, we, we need to recognize that we are not called only to cultivate a private faith. Sometimes we forget that faith is intended not just to be lived, uh, sometimes we forget that our faith is intended not just to live, to be lived out in community, but to grow community, grow in community. We can oftentimes isolate our experience by just focusing on our own relationship with God. And don't get me wrong, this is important and this is essential and it's a non-negotiable, but our faith is not private. It has to lead to a public faith. In other words, you need to know how your faith and your relationship with God vertically will shape the way you relate to others horizontally. And just as it is written in our core values at our church, we are to be a living community that seeks to build relationships and share our lives with people inside and outside of the church. We strive to be a church that is more than a a location or an event, but instead be a people living for Christ in relationship with each other no matter what day of the week. We pursue this because we find in the Bible a grand vision of what God is going to bring in His ultimate plan for humanity. This is a place where we see a picture of unity and diversity. Let me read to you a passage Uh, from Revelation 7. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now this vision of unity within the church that we just saw is not like a melting pot where all the individual groups are mixed together and where they lose their individual identities. No, God is ransoming for himself a diverse church from every nation, from all tribes, of all tongues, all people, all languages. This is not a vision of uniformity but a vision that celebrates diversity and differences. And as we strive for unity and celebration of diversity in our church, I believe that we also have to acknowledge that even in our day-to-day, that we fail and we sometimes show preferential treatment to one group over another group. And I believe the first step in growing in unity is to be honest and upfront with the fact that we do this sometimes. And that something is... And that is something that's going to require effort and intentionality, and that's okay. 
So if we begin talking about our own church here at CTK, I can see different groups of people coming together to create one body, one church. Here we have young and old, both in age but also in spiritual maturity, right? We see singles here. There are couples. There are couples with children. And there are even grandparents here. And we definitely see more than just a few ethnicities represented here in this room. And that is such an amazing place to begin growing in unity. We are already beginning to reflect what Paul was encouraging and affirming in the church in Ephesus uh, when he refers to them as one body in Christ. You see, the church in Ephesus was very similar uh, to our church. It was filled with people from different backgrounds, different genders, different socioeconomic status, classes, and different ethnicities. I would argue that our unity is most pronounced when we are united with people who are not like us because it highlights what a powerful unifying source Christ is. And it can be overwhelming to try to learn how to grow as a Christian. But rather than focusing on just the specifics of what to do and what not to do, let's turn our gaze and our eyes to the bigger picture and see the example that Jesus lived on earth for us to follow. In learning to love what God loves and hating what God hates, specifically the six things that the Lord hates and the seven that are an abomination to him. Let's look at how Christ chose to interact with those around him and with God, his Father. If anyone had a reason to have haughty eyes and to look down on others, it would have been Jesus. Jesus, he was with God the Father and the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, from eternity past, from the beginning of creation. And yet he humbled himself by taking on flesh and blood to become one of us, to become a man. The second abomination is a lying tongue. And although many accused him of speaking lies and deceiving his followers on earth, in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say that he would just show us the truth, nor did he point us to the truth. He said that he was the truth. He is the living truth that brings life to sinful men. The only way for Christ to bring life to sinful men and women like us was for his innocent blood to be shed on our behalf. So in contrast to the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth uh, abominations, it was Christ who was falsely accused by hearts that deceived wicked plans. And it was his innocent blood that was shed by those who make haste to run to evil. It's by Jesus' death and resurrection that has secured for us to have unity with the Father. And that is why the Father loves and values unity among his children. May we hold on to these promises and trust and work and pursue unity in our church today. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, as we grow in wisdom and as we grow uh, in learning of having a fear, a holy reverence for you, Lord. May we learn to love the things you love and to hate the things you hate. We thank you for the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the power that comes uh, through his resurrection that gives us um, the ability to overcome these obstacles. We thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
time uh, of communion.